Please stand.
dismissed at this time.
you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John. We're going to break away from the book of Romans. Today I want to bring a message to you from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, talking about joy. Next week we're going to have a, another special service. The kids will be doing a kind of a Christmas play. And I'll bring a short message and then when we come together on Christmas Eve, we'll have some reflections again about Advent, about the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the angels met the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, the angel announced to the shepherds, I have great tidings of joy, which will be to all the people, for born this day in the city of David, it's a Savior. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes and he'll be lying in a feed trough. And suddenly there was with that angel the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace. Goodwill to men. Glad tidings of joy. Peace. Joy and peace. Probably when you buy Christmas cards, there'll be various messages all through them, but you will see in most of them either the word peace or joy. Joy. What is joy? What does it mean to be a joyful person? When people think of you, when people think about me, do they think about someone who is joy? And what is joy? Is joy simply happiness? Or is it deeper? What does it look like to be joyful? In 1 John chapter 1, we find that John is writing these things to these people that they might have complete joy. What does it mean? Where does it come from? As you go through life, as I go through life, various things come into our life that very easily can steal our joy. What is joy? I want you to notice with me in 1 John chapter 1. This book is written by the Apostle John. He also wrote the Gospel of John. He writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. Outside of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John writes more the New Testament than any other person. And here in this book, at the beginning of it, you see a very similar message as you see in his gospel in the first chapter. In Luke and in Matthew, those writers of those gospels begin with a narrative about how Jesus was born and how he fulfilled the prophecies and, and how he came and what the events were like when he was born in Bethlehem. John doesn't begin with that. John doesn't even have an account of the birth of Jesus. John begins in eternity past. And in John, in the gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, was the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light rejoiced in the darkness. And the darkness could not overcome it. In a very similar way, John begins this letter, 1 John, talking about the Word and talking about the beginning. It's very important we think about this when we think about Jesus. When you were conceived in your mother's womb, not when you were born, 
When you were conceived in your mother's womb, that was when you began to be. And from that moment in time, when you were conceived in your mother's womb, you are an eternal being. You will live somewhere forever. But when Jesus was born on earth, that was not when his existence began. He had always been. He was in the beginning. And so John draws attention to that in 1 John. And I want you to notice with me this letter. And I want you to notice what he says in chapter 1. We're going to read through the whole chapter. It's only 10 verses. And I want you to see what John is saying about Jesus and why he came. It tells us in verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we looked upon. We touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we heard from Him. And this is the message that we are proclaiming to you. Here's the message. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, then we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the satisfaction for our sin and not just for ours, but also the sin of the whole world. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that you sent your son who was with you from the beginning, that he stepped into time. He came as Emmanuel, God with us. He was born of a virgin. He was born in a humble stable, perhaps a cave. He lived a earthly life as a carpenter, then as an itinerant teacher. And then he died. And when he died, he died not for his own sin, but for ours. And he rose again. Father, may we truly understand why we worship you at Christmas, why we worship your son at all. is because of the reality that we see here that he came into this world to set us free from sin and that he is God. So we think about these things this morning. I pray that you bless our time. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to draw your attention to where we're going. We're going to go there quickly this morning. I want to talk about the foundation of his proclamation. You will notice that in this chapter, he mentioned repeatedly 
that he is proclaiming something. Now he is proclaiming it in writing. Many times he also proclaimed it publicly in his teaching and his preaching. But he is proclaiming something. And I want you to notice the foundation of his proclamation. Then we're going to talk about the purpose of his proclamation. Why is he saying what he's saying? What is he getting at? And then I want you to look with me at the message that he proclaims. And we'll tie it all together. The first thing that I want you to notice is, where does this proclamation come from? If you'll notice with me in the first couple verses, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, with our eyes... we looked upon, it's a different word, he says there he saw it, but the word looked there is a different word in the Greek language and it means to look intently, to scrutinize something, it's what you girls do in the mirror in the morning, you scrutinize every nook and cranny, you look carefully, and then he says, not only did we see him and look at him, we touched him with our hands, and this was all concerning the word of life. The life was manifest. Notice that word manifest. The word means to reveal, to make clear. There's two words in the original language that means to reveal something. One is the word apocalypsis. We get the word apocalypse from it the word revelation, and it just simply means to unveil something. That's not this word. This is a different Greek word, and it means to make something clear, to make it manifest. It's a verb. He, he, he revealed himself. It was an action that he was doing, that God was manifesting something about himself. And the word manifest is an interesting word, because when God revealed himself, he didn't make it obscure. He didn't leave us guessing. No, he manifested himself. He made it very clear. He made it very clear who he is. Why he came. What your need is. What my need is. And where we can go for eternity. And he made it very clear how we could get there. He didn't leave us with any guesswork. He made it clear. He manifested. If you think about the word manifest... Sometimes it'll be used in a noun form. Like, for instance, a ship's manifest. What is a ship's manifest? A ship's manifest would be just a, a comprehensive declaration of everything that is on the ship. It's a full disclosure. And so when he says here that God manifested himself to us, he's saying he made a full disclosure of himself to us and he did that full disclosure in the person of Jesus. And so he says here, the life was made manifest, we saw it, we are testifying to it, and we are proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so your fellowship may be with us. Notice how many times there he makes reference to an eyewitness account. And what I want you to think about as we begin this is the foundation of the apostles' proclamation was the unshakable certainty of what they saw and experienced. They saw him, they touched him, they heard him, they knew him. And they are writing to us and saying, this is exactly what happened. This isn't a second-hand account. This is an eyewitness account. It is an unshakable reality. The foundation of the proclamation is the unshakable reality of what they had seen and what they saw Jesus do. 
In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 16, Peter says this. We did not follow cleverly contrived myths. The Greeks loved to write clever myths. You can still read them today, can't you? Aesop's fables and other things, all the mythology that came out of the Greek world. And what he's saying is, Peter's saying, you know, we didn't, after Jesus was killed on the cross and after he was dead, we didn't all get in the upper room and come up with a bunch of stories about Jesus and contrive a bunch of myths. We did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this. When you see something and you experience something, it leads to an unshakable conviction, doesn't it? I told this story a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school. I still don't know what to make of it, but I saw this. We were talking about Eastern religions and we were talking about health and kind of holistic things. And I was in this doctor's clinic this one time in Pocatello and I was sitting there getting a transfusion in my arm. And it's kind of a holistic clinic. And I had been talking with a woman, there's about 30 of us in this room getting transfusions. We've been talking to this woman and she had some kind of cancer. And she was clearly very, very, very sick. And I had to move to a different seat because of what they were doing to me. And I moved further down the row and she was sitting straight across from me. And I was talking to somebody else. And all of a sudden, this woman's eyes rolled back in her head. And she went into a full-blown seizure. I mean, full-blown seizure. I'm tied up. I can't get over. The nurse comes running over sees what's going on, runs out of the room, and in comes this guy. He's a doctor. He inserted an acupuncture needle right here. Don't try it at home. Right here under her nose. I mean, she is in a full-blown seizure. He puts this acupuncture needle right under her nose. The seizure quit. She looked at him and started talking to him. I have no idea what that is. I can't explain that. I don't know what happened. I'm not going to try to explain that. All I'm saying is this. I saw it. She's in a full-blown seizure. I'm thinking she's going to Jesus if she knows Jesus. And the next minute, she's talking to him. And was fine. I mean, she was still sick with her cancer. But the seizure was done. Now, you're all thinking about that, wondering about acupuncture. I, have no, I can't explain that. I don't know what that means. But I'll say, I'll say this. I was there. I saw it. It wasn't a fake. Something happened there. I don't know what the explanation is. It was a mystery. Can you imagine being the apostles? And almost every day for three years, things like that just rock your world. When that happened, it was like a three-hour infusion. When it was done, Amy came and picked me up, and I went out in the car. And I said to Amy, as soon as I got in the car, dear, you will not believe what I just saw. You will not believe what I just saw. Can you imagine being the apostles? And Peter goes home, and he says, dear, you won't believe what just happened. We were on the Sea of Galilee. It was the middle of the night. And we thought we were all dying. There was a storm that was so big. And Peter was a, was, a, was a sailor. Peter was a fisherman. He'd been on that lake forever. And he was scared to death, it says in the text. He looks over and Jesus is asleep in the boat. Don't you care, Master, that we are perishing? Jesus sits up, rubs his eyes, peace be still, and back to sleep. Dead calm. Peter goes home. Dear, you won't believe what I just saw. Can you imagine? 
You're going on the road to Jericho. There's a guy sitting by the road. His name is Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up. You know what I mean? Trying to quiet the guy down. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Finally, Jesus comes over. What do you want me to do for you? I want to see. Oh, that's good. And Jesus keeps going. And Bartimaeus is up, dancing in the street. I can see. I can see. I can see. And everywhere these guys go, for three years, they're like keeping a journal. I cannot believe what just happened. They heard him. They saw him. They touched him. After his resurrection, when they were doubting, he said to them, come here, touch me, feel me, for you know that a spirit doesn't have any flesh. Give me a fish, I'll eat it in front of you. These men have an unshakable conviction that this person, Jesus Christ, is God. They have looked at his credentials. He is the son of David. They have listened to his claims. Before Abraham was, I am. They have seen his capabilities. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That testimony is the unshakable foundation of their proclamation. They wrote it down. And God has preserved his word and we read their eyewitness account in the New Testament. Now, what is the purpose of the proclamation? I want you to notice in these verses what he says next. In verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that. Do you see that? Look at those words in your Bible. So that, in order that. This is this, this is little Greek phrase meaning purpose. It's a purpose statement. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you in order that you may have fellowship with us. And then he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So what is he doing? The purpose of his proclamation is to bring us into the partnership, into the fellowship, to be sharers with them of Christ and of God to have fellowship. We have been brought into the circle of the apostolic fellowship. And then he says from this, and we are writing these things so our joy may be complete. In other words, the fellowship is what we're called into, and as we come into the fellowship, we come into fellowship with each other in the body of Christ and with God Almighty, and as that happens, the byproduct is the joy. And what he's saying there is outside of the fellowship, there is no joy, not in the way we experience it as Christians, that is deeper than just mere happiness. Happiness is kind of superficial and kind of ebbs and flows with circumstances. But joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it comes from our fellowship with God and with one another. And it is a deep abiding 
sense the presence of God even in trying, trying times. And so he brings us into the fellowship. And so notice with me, how do we come into the fellowship? How do we come into the fellowship? I hope you're in fellowship with God and with each other. I hope you're a part of this fellowship. We, we sometimes call churches that. We, we say, like, you know, it's, it's the fellowship. We use it kind of in a noun sense, in a nominative. And, and we think of it in sense of being a partner, enjoying company with one another. And I hope that you see yourself as a part of the fellowship. But how do you become a part of the fellowship? Is it just by coming here? Well, you know, just because I go in the barn doesn't mean I'm a cow. You know, is it just by coming here that you become a part of the fellowship? Where does fellowship with God come from? And what is it based on? And I want you to notice this. He says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we are having fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. You know, we don't come into the fellowship with God and each other as Christians just because Jesus was born. It wasn't his birth that secured our fellowship. It is his blood. It is his death. It is his death that secures for us forgiveness of sin and restores us to a relationship with God. And apart from that, we are not in the fellowship. We're just in the building. It's great to have you in the building. But if you want to be in fellowship with God, you can only come to God in true fellowship as you come to him through the blood of Christ. You say, what does that mean? You know, I mean, think about how many hymns we sing sometimes as Christians that would make no sense to the world. And, and you know, if, if you had no background in the church, you'd be like, there's power in the blood. What does that mean? Power, power, wonder-working power. What are we talking about? The New Testament lays out the reality that the life is in the blood. It comes out of the Old Testament. We're in the law. God taught this so often in the sacrificial system that, that it is the blood that makes atonement for our sin. And so that if we want to have fellowship with God and I'm a sinner and that fellowship is broken, then somehow there had to be an atoning sacrifice by which God would bring me back to himself. And that atoning sacrifice could never suffice if it was just me Paying for my own sin. It had to be an innocent substitute. And so Jesus Christ, God himself, comes into the world. He lays down his life. He is innocent of all sin. And his blood is shed to pay the debt that you could never pay. To pay the debt that it would take eternity for you to pay alienated from God in a place of torment. And so his blood is what secures our fellowship. Never think that you can come to God, that you can pray to God, that anything within you brings any merit before God if you are not in the blood of Christ. It is the death of Christ that secures our fellowship with God and that alone. The message that he proclaims is really simple. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say, we see this contrast all through the book of 1 John. What we say with our mouth versus what we 
possess in reality. If we say we are in him, but we are walking in the darkness, we are kidding ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, what does it mean to walk in the light and to walk in darkness? It doesn't mean that if you're walking in the light, you're no longer a sinner. It doesn't mean that at all. Because he develops that in these verses when he says this. If we are walking in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. To walk in the darkness means this, to live in denial. Remember the questions he asked at the end of the chapter, the if questions? If we say we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves. The person who says, well, I'm not a sinner, I'm really good enough. I don't even know what sin is. I'm good with God. I just make mistakes. I'm just not perfect. But I don't sin. If we say we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves. What are we doing? We're walking in darkness. Who is the one that's walking in the light? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now think about what he says there. If we confess, God is not looking for you to fix your own mess. All he is asking for you to do is to own it. To own it to him. He'll do the rest. You don't have to fix it. What we try to do is fix it. We try to clean ourselves up and we're going to come to God after we get ourselves cleaned up. It's a lie. It's walking in darkness. All he asks you to do is to own it. If we confess our sins, two things happen. Number one, he is faithful. Think about that. What does it mean to be faithful? Always do it. If we confess our sin, he will always do this. He is faithful to do it. You're not going to come to God one day and say, God, I did this, please forgive me. And he says, well, not this time. I didn't remember that one when I died on the cross. Or that's too big a sin. I can't believe you did that. No, he is faithful. He will always be there. He will always do this. If we confess our sin, he is faithful. And secondly, he is what? Just. It is just for him to forgive you. Why? Because he paid for it. He paid for it on the cross. If we confess our sin, he will always and in complete justice send our sins away. Remember them no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, he will always forgive us and cleanse us. Wash us clean. And the reason is, as he says in chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you because I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to even commit one act of sin. But he says, I'm a realist. If anyone sins, we have an, an advocate, we have an attorney for our defense with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the satisfying atonement for our sin. And not for our sin only, but for the sin of the whole world. Fundamentally, Christ came to this earth to deal with sin. We don't want to talk about sin anymore. But fundamentally, the reason Jesus came was to deal with sin and to help you come to terms with it. And the way you come to terms with it is by confessing not only your sin and that you are a sinner, but confessing that he is Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father, as it says in the book of Romans. That's why Jesus came. The message of Christmas isn't a baby in a manger. The message of Jesus is this. Light came into the world, and he is life. And if you will trust him, he will give you eternal life. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you that when your son came, he entrusted himself to this little band of men who saw everything that he did and experienced all these things. And they wrote them down for us. Based on the credibility of their witness, Lord, we come to you and we confess our sin. And we confess that you are Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of eternal life that is ours because of what you did. So, Father, as we close today, I just pray that if there's someone in our midst today that has never truly repented, has truly never received Jesus as Lord, that even as the kids lead us in a closing song, they're in their seat where they are, Lord, they would do business with you. And they would simply, Lord, come into the light and receive you as their life. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Please stand.